Hi, I'm Robert Jeffress, and I'm glad to serve as your Bible teacher every day on this great radio station on today's edition of Pathway to Victory. You know, I have done wedding ceremonies for about 45 years, and uh, I ask a couple to do a lot of things, but one thing I ask them to commit to is forsaking all others to be faithful to that other person alone. And that's really what the first commandment is about. It's about esteeming God alone. Welcome to Pathway to Victory with author and pastor, Dr. Robert Jeffress. In every star that shines in the night sky and every flower that graces the earth, God's power and majesty are on display. And for these reasons and more, God is worthy of our praise. Today on Pathway to Victory, Dr. Robert Jeffress explains why these truths should compel us to obey the first commandment. Now, here's our Bible teacher to introduce today's message. Dr. Jeffress? Thanks, David, and welcome again to Pathway to Victory. Could you, from memory, come up with an accurate list of the Ten Commandments? Oh, Dr. Jeffress, you're making me feel guilty. Actually, don't feel guilty. If you don't have the Ten Commandments memorized, you have lots of company. A recent poll revealed that 60% of Americans can't name even five of the commandments. In fact, only 14% of Americans can name all ten. This is why I invested months preparing a brand new teaching series for you. Along that journey of personal study, writing, and preaching, I was inspired to write a new book for you as well. My new book, which is released nationally this week, is called The Ten. The subtitle is How to Live and Love in a World That's Lost Its Way. In today's world, the Ten Commandments are viewed as archaic and restrictive. But that's never what God intended when He delivered the tablets to Moses on Mount Sinai. He gave us the Ten Commandments as moral guardrails to enhance our happiness, not restrict it. My entire teaching series is contained in my brand new book called The Ten, and a copy is yours today when you give a generous gift to support the growing ministry of Pathway to Victory. But right now, let me whet your appetite for the book with a message from Exodus chapter 20 about keeping God as the highest priority in your life. For some people, family always comes first. Others are dedicated to their careers or financial goals. But for Christians, one thing should remain at the top. I titled today's message, Esteem God Alone. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, as we discover why it is we are to esteem God alone. What does that word esteem mean? The primary Hebrew word for esteem is eric, eric. And it literally means to arrange things and to put them in order. When it comes to another person, it means to give priority to somebody by placing them first in order of priority. That's what God is commanding in verse three when he said, you are to have no other gods before me. I'm to be first place in your life. Now, why is it we ought to esteem God and put him in first place? I want you to notice in these first three verses what God says. Then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, 
you shall have no other gods before me. Well, you notice in verse two, he gives us four reasons that we are to have no other gods before him. The reason is in verse two, the command is in verse three. Four reasons to esteem God alone. Two have to do with who God is. The next two have to do with what God has done. First of all, we're to put God in first place because God is our creator. Remember the old Saturday night live show, the uh, Saturday night news update when Chevy Chase was the lead comedian. Remember how he opened that segment? He said, good evening, I'm Chevy Chase and you're not. Well, you know, that's what God is saying here. Why are you to worship me alone? I am self-existent. I am self-sustaining. I am eternal. I am sovereign. And you're not. That's why you are to worship me. I am the creator. God gives us another reason to put him in first place. Not only is our creator, he is our covenant maker. He is our covenant maker. God is not just some distant deity. He says to the Israelites and to us, I am the Lord, your God. I want a relationship with you. God didn't just create this world and you and leave us to our own. He wants to have a friendship with us, but he wants more than a friendship. He wants an intimate relationship with every one of us. And that is the most incomprehensible thing to me to think that the God who made all of this cares about you and cares about me and wants a relationship with us. And he took the first step in establishing that relationship. You know, whoever takes the first step in initiating a relationship is really going out on a limb. He's taking a chance. God has done that. He has set his affection on us. Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, he made the first move. He sent Christ to die for us. He is our covenant maker. He wants a relationship with us. In fact, 2 Corinthians 1, verses 21 to 22, talks about the steps God went through to make a relationship with us. Look at this. Now he, that is God, who establishes us with you, is Christ and anointed us is God. God took the initiative. He established a relationship with Christ and he also sealed us, verse 22, and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. God took the initiative. He sent Christ. He sent his Holy Spirit as a gift. You could translate that as a down payment, as an earnest, or as a wedding ring, a ring, a sign, an engagement ring that we are his, and one day he's going to come and take us into himself. He's coming for the bride, the church of Jesus Christ, to take the bride, to unite the bride with the groom, Jesus Christ himself. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you unto myself. God took the initiative. He is our covenant maker. Don't ever gloss over that. The creator of the universe loves you and wants a relationship with you. Why do we esteem God and God alone? He is not only our creator and covenant maker. Notice what he's done for us. Two things. He is our redeemer. We see this again in verse 2 of Exodus 21. God said, I am the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt 
out of the house of slavery. God has released us from the prison house of slavery to sin and to Satan. Uh, Paul expressed it this way in Colossians 1, 13 and 14. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You've heard me talk about that word redemption, redeem, exagorazzo. It means out of, ex, the agora, the marketplace. When slaves were sold and purchased, it was done in the agora, the forum. If you wanted to purchase a slave, you would pay whatever the price was and you would redeem him, exagorazzo him, and take him out of the marketplace to become your servant. That's what God did for us. He paid the price for our redemption from Satan and sin, and the price was the blood of Jesus Christ himself. He has paid that price for us because he loves us in spite of what we have done. Even though we've gone astray from him, he has never lost his love for us. When I think about this idea of redemption, I think about the story of the little boy who spent weeks working on a model sailboat, a little red sailboat. And the day came that he had finished the project and he was eager to test it out. So he took it down to the local pond. He put it into the water to see if it floated. A gust of wind came and caught the sails and took that sailboat far from him. The little boy was heartbroken. Something he had spent so much time building was now lost forever. A few weeks later, he was walking down the street and he saw in the window of the toy store his red sailboat. He couldn't believe it. He was overjoyed. He thought he would never see it again. And he went in and explained to the store owner that that was his sailboat and could he please have it back? The store owner said he didn't know anything about that. All he knew was he had paid for the boat himself. And if the little boy wanted it, it would cost him. It was $14. So the boy reached into his pocket pulled out a sweaty wad of dollar bills, counted out $14, gave it to the man. And he took that sailboat and he held it close to his chest. And as he walked down the sidewalk, he said, you're mine twice now. Once because I made you and now because I bought you. That's what God says to us. You belong to me. First, because I made you. But even though the winds of sin carried you away far from me, I never gave up hope. And I purchased you. I bought you, not with dollar bills. I bought you with the blood of my son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know you're not your own? You've been bought with a price. That's why we worship God alone, because he made us and he redeemed us. He bought us. And finally, we're to esteem God alone because he is our rewarder. In verse 12 of Exodus 20, he tells us that he not only delivered us out of the house of slavery, but he's delivered us into the land which the Lord your God gives you. He's rewarding us with a promise of heaven one day that eternal dwelling place that we'll enjoy with God forever. What does it mean to esteem God alone? What does that mean exactly? 
I want you to notice in verse three, two components to this command, this most basic command, you shall have no other gods before me. First of all, shall have, let's break it down. Shall have, when I have a couple repeat the vows at a wedding ceremony, they say to have and to hold from this day forward. What does it mean to have somebody? Well, it means to possess them, to possess something of them exclusively. For example, I have a car. You heard about my car last week. I have a car. Nobody has a right to drive that car except me without my permission. It is my car. I have a house. It's my house. Nobody has a right to wander in or wander out of it without my possession, permission. It is my possession. It is my house. I have a wife now, Amy. Nobody has a right to her affection except me. She is my wife. And the same is true for me. Nobody has a right to my affection except her. When we say we're to have no other gods, we are to have God and God exclusively. He said, I want to be the sole focus of your affection. You see, the problem with the Israelites, this is important to understand, was they never abandoned the true God. They just added to the true God with many false gods. God said, nope, doesn't work that way. Either you love me and serve me exclusively, or you don't have me at all. That's what it means to have. And then the second phrase, no other gods before me. You're to have no other gods before me. You know, uh, the Israelites had spent 430 years in Egyptian slavery, and they had developed a habit of worshiping false gods. And during those 10 plagues, right before the Exodus, God showed how he was superior to all the other Egyptian gods, which the Israelites had become accustomed to and even began to worship. For example, for example, uh, the Egyptians believed that the Nile River was the bloodstream of the false god Osiris, who is the god of life and death. The uh, Nile River was the bloodstream. Well, when God turned that river into blood, essentially their false god Osiris, he bled out right before all the Egyptians and the Israelites. Or remember, they had another god, Ra, the god of the sun, the god of light. God showed his superiority by making everything dark, a great darkness descended over all the land of Egypt. They had another God they served, Hecate. You know who Hecate was? He was the God of the frogs. The Egyptians worshiped frogs and the God of the frogs, Hecate. So God said one day, oh, you like frogs, do you? <laughs> Choke on these. And millions of frogs came from the Nile River and infected every part of the Egyptians' lives. They saw the futility of other gods, but now here they are about to enter into the promised land. And God is saying, remember, you're to have no other gods before me. And the reason he makes that, the primary command is, he knew they were about to enter a new land that even had greater temptations to idolatry than what they had experienced for 430 years in Egypt. Why were these, two, these new Canaanite gods even more powerful in their appeal? Well, first of all, because of Israel's prolonged habit of idolatry. You know, the longer you do something, the more it becomes a habit. 
Habits can either work for you or against you. Have you noticed that? A good habit works for you. Bad habits work against you. Uh, Good habits become reflexive. They become almost second nature. Unfortunately, so do bad habits. I like to illustrate it this way. You know, I could take a piece of string and wrap it one time around my hand. If I did that, I could easily break free. But if I wrapped it three, four, five, six, even though it's a tiny piece of string, wrapping it four, five, six times would make it impossible for me to break free. That's why Proverbs 5.22 says, sin is like a cord. Repeated sin is like cords that ensnare us. And God realized that after 430 years of idolatry, the Israelites would be much more susceptible to idolatry in the new land of Canaan. But there was a second reason they faced an even greater temptation. It was because of the false gods' powerful appeal. These new false gods they would face in Canaan would have much more appeal than the Egyptian gods. I mean, let's be honest. It's one thing to worship a God of blood and frogs and light. But these new Canaanite gods, they would demand worship through gluttony, through drunkenness, through sexual immorality. They would be much more tempting. And that's why in Deuteronomy 6, Moses said, now before you... Go into this promised land, remember God's command, the great Shema of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God, and you're to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Verses six and seven, you're to teach your children about them. You're to obey him. Verses eight and nine, you're to remember God and fear and worship him. And that same truth is for us today. We're living in a land in which there are many appealing substitutes for God. But God says, my most primary command to you is to worship me, esteem me, and me alone. Why? Because I am your creator, your covenant maker, your redeemer, and your rewarder. Now let's get real practical for a moment. How do you know if God really has first place, he's sitting in that first chair in your life. In a little book called Laws That Liberate, one writer suggests three questions to ask yourself to know if God has first place in your life. Let me elaborate on these for just a moment. Question number one, this is so simple. What do you think about most often? What do you think about most often? That will tell you what your God is. In those quiet moments while you're driving or standing in a checkout line or maybe drifting off to sleep at night, where do your thoughts naturally turn? You know how a compass works. You can shake up a compass and the needle bounces around, but very quickly it goes to true north, doesn't it? When your thoughts finally settle down, Where are they directed? Money? Pleasure? A relationship? Or do your thoughts naturally go to God who has given you all of those blessings? What do you think about most often? Second question to ask yourself, whom are you trying to impress? Whom are you trying to impress? Let's be honest, all of us are trying to impress somebody. Maybe a mate? 
maybe a friend, maybe a work associate. You may be trying to impress yourself that you can climb the ladder and reach the pinnacle of success. During the Great Reformation, the battle cry was Coram Deo, Latin for before the eyes of God. Martin Luther and the great reformers were willing to give their life because they knew ultimately they were living their life for an audience of one. In the end, all really that mattered is pleasing God, impressing God. That's not an original thought. Paul voiced it 1,500 years before the Reformation. In 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 and 10, he said, for we have as our ambition, our goal, whether here or absent, to be pleasing to God. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one of us may be rewarded for what we've done in the body, whether it be good or worthless. What do you think about most often? Whom are you trying to impress? And the final question, what are you living for? What are you living for? Remember the old soap opera, One Life to Live? Never watched it, but I thought the title was intriguing. One Life to Live, that's an important truth. We all only have one life to live. What is your ultimate goal in life? Again, is it measured in possessions or pleasures or relationships? If God truly has first place in your life, you're living for one thing, to discover God's will for your life and then do it with all of your heart. The Christian mystic, Madame Guyon, said there are really only two principles, competing principles that govern this universe. One principle is the one that has me at the center of my universe. The other is the one that has God at the center of the universe. It's one or the other. It can't be both. The person who has God at the center of his universe will have thoughts that turn to him naturally, will be living to impress him and him alone, and will seek to do his will, whatever the cost. And so the question lingers in our minds, who or what is at the center of our universe, God or someone else? I hope today's message prompts you to make a careful evaluation of your top priority. To accelerate this process, I'd like to send you a copy of my brand new book called The Ten. It's the one that coincides with this brand new teaching series. Only a couple of generations ago, it was generally accepted that the Ten Commandments were the foundation of our nation's legal system. In recent years, however, the Ten Commandments are viewed as obsolete. And for some people, the Ten Commandments have become a despised symbol of restraint. Well, at Pathway to Victory, we're determined to change this false perception. And we can do that by broadcasting the truth about the Ten Commandments around the world. To say thank you for your generous gift to Pathway to Victory, let me send you a copy of my latest book. Again, it was released nationally just this week, and it's called The Ten. The subtitle is How to Live in Love in a World That's Lost Its Way. I want to leave you with an encouraging word from one of your fellow listeners. Therese from Georgia wrote, 
thank you for speaking the truth about these battles in our country. We have never seen times like these before, with more problems in our families, our country, and the world. Thank you for your ministry. Well, thank you, Carice, for your insightful comments. And to those of you who give, thank you for supporting Pathway to Victory. Now more than ever, your generous gift empowers us to utilize every platform at our disposal to reach America and the world with the hope of Jesus Christ. David? Thanks, Dr. Jeffress. Today, when you give a generous gift to support the ministry of Pathway to Victory, you're invited to request a copy of the brand new book by Dr. Jeffress called The Ten, How to Live and Love in a World that Has Lost Its Way. Call 866-999-2965 or make your request online at ptv.org. And when you give $100 or more, we'll also send you the 10 Teaching Series, the complete collection of audio and video discs. You'll get that along with the helpful study guide. One more time, call 866-999-2965 or go online to ptv.org. You could also write to us if you'd like. P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas, 75222. Again, that's P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas, 75222. I'm David J. Mullins. Idol worship was a major problem in ancient Israel, and it's still a pervasive problem in the church today. Join us for a message on the second commandment, Worship the True God. That's Friday on Pathway to Victory. Pathway to Victory with Dr. Robert Jeffress comes from the pulpit of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas. The Pathway to Victory cruise to Alaska with Dr. Robert Jeffress set sail from Vancouver, British Columbia on June 15, 2024. Join me along with musical artists Rebecca St. James and Michael O'Brien and comedian Dennis Swamberg for a vacation you'll never forget. I promise you will come back spiritually, physically, and emotionally refreshed. Book your spot on the seven-day Pathway to Victory cruise to Alaska at ptv.org.